Well, there we are. I think we should be live, which is good. Um, welcome, everybody. So uh, a particular welcome to Artwell, our guest. And uh, Artwell, I, <laughs> thank you for being patient and, uh, and waiting to join, uh, join us for Extra. It's really great to have you here. And I know we're going to have a very interesting discussion. Um, you've had a bit of a chance to meet our other presenters, so a bit of chat going on with Alex and uh, Mark as well. So that was good. Uh, now, what do I want to say? Uh, I think I'll just bring on the subject to Richard D. Hall again, which I ended the, the news on, but I do think this is, this is absolutely critical. I'm very interested, or I would be interested to know whether the BBC was actually funding, effectively putting in funding to make this court case happen. I don't know whether they were or not, but I'm a suspicious person and I wonder whether that's the case. Um, but yeah, I do believe that um, this will be a precedence case. And um, if it has a bad result for Richard D. Hall, we can all expect um, uh, a lot of pressure. Do you, do you agree with that, Alex? I do, because this is quite an outrageous application. It's an application for summary judgment this afternoon by the claimants, and they are saying that Richard D. Hall's analysis and opinions in broadcasting were tantamount to harassment. But they're not content, and we know that, well, we feel that they have been put up to it by the BBC and uh, the Mariana Spring contingent, as we've reported in the past. But however, be that as it may, even if it's genuinely uh, aggrieved people who have, uh, were, were not put up to it by anyone else, uh, it takes quite some chutzpah to apply to a court uh, that Mr. D, Mr. Richard D. Hall must not be allowed in any future trial to bring his evidence to bear because he's already upset them. Okay, we can understand that from their perspective. That is tantamount to harassment. No way, Jose. But they go on to say that there is no merit in his uh, research and uh, because there would be very likely uh, no uh, court judgment in his future uh, in his favor in future if his material were brought into a public hearing therefore he must not be allowed to bring it into uh, the um, uh, current proceedings against him because apparently a public inquiry has already uh, done a stitch up and said that uh, Mr. Hall's version is wrong. Therefore, uh, this evidence must never see the light of day in a court. So it's it, it takes inspiration from several sectors. It has a, a whiff of the social services wicked mantra, risk of future emotional abuse about it. Uh, it has overtones of this is not good for dust folk. Uh, it's not in the greater good or public interest. And it also has overtones of the new, which uh, I think Sir Keir Starmer is responsible for, the lower threshold for the Attorney General for England and Wales taking over uh, pub uh, private prosecutions. They are still allowed in England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And they're the Attorney General since Starmer's time, 2009, the last time we had a Labour government, uh, has lowered the threshold for uh, what's called a nolle prosequi, you know, the Attorney General throwing the case out to uh, the threshold of the Attorney General's office doesn't think that a court would convict. It used to be that there's no merit at all. But now it's uh, we don't think that a court would, uh, would convict. And, of course, everyone knows that the judges direct juries these days. So uh, it's, it's the worst of several worlds of the British legal scene all being wrapped up into do not allow this man to speak 
He's yep. already been decided as a person of no value. Yeah. All right. Thank you for that, Alex. Well, we will cover more on it. Let's turn to Artwell. And um, the floor is yours, really. Uh, just introduce yourself a little bit for the UK column viewers and listeners, Artwell, and uh, tell us about uh, what you're seeing with these uh, low traffic neighbourhoods. You're describing them as roadblocks in Oxford. But uh, tell us about yourself and what you've been up to. Okay, well, I've been a UK column listener for quite a while and I've attended a few of the conferences in the past. And with the help of the UK column, because it really is the only broadcast out of England that addresses what I call local issues. There's a lot from the United States, as you all know. I think it's important that it's, it's here that, that we support it and that it's because it's the only one looking at the minutiae of local government, local issues here in England. And on that topic, right now in Oxford, Oxford City Council and Oxford County Council is controlled by the Labour, Lib Dems and Greens. And we have seen an absolute avalanche of green policies that take the form of what I call East Oxford's roadblock policies. What they have done, they've cut off all the roads leading off to the main thoroughfare, so you have to just stay on the main thoroughfare. UK column, it has caused congestion, chaos, confusion, delays, ambulances and firemen and so forth. It's absolutely awful. But despite this, the county council who run this, they're still going full blazing, ignoring totally what the local people think. And I want to just say this now that last week I was sent something from the Daily Telegraph, which was saying that, and this is, I find this quite frightening. It was saying that apparently the Daily Telegraph says that 100 councils have made anti-democratic pledges to a, to a, to beat the government's own net zero targets. And this organisation is called the UK 100, which is bankrolled, according to the paper, by green billionaires without consulting voters. And it goes on to say that if you are wondering why so many local councils seem hell-bent on damaging anti-motorist policies, this may explain it. And I feel in Oxford, this is exactly what we've got. The article then goes on to say, if you want to find out if your council has these consultants who come from these uh, UK 100, put your email in. So I put my, I'm sorry, put my your postcode in. So I did. And of course, without any surprise to any of you gentlemen, Oxford City Council has signed up to this UK 100 bank road by green billionaires. And it explains why we can't seem to get any traction. And I really want to say, and I really want to encourage with all my heart, UK column viewers, it's local elections in about three months' time. Please consider standing as an independent because it's the only direct way that you have of trying to make an impact. And here in Oxford, let me just give you a quick example. Here in Oxford, we are controlled by Liberal Democrats, Green and Labour, which means if you are opposed to the East Oxford roadblock policy, come the local elections, you have nobody to vote for. I mean, this is just 
unacceptable that we have almost slipping into a tyranny, UK column viewers, in Oxford, where you literally feel you have no one else to vote for. If you are out of step, you oppose the East Oxford roadblock policies. What do you guys, gentlemen, say to that? Well, the first thing I say to you, well, is that uh, uh, the the parties, there is no difference between them. The colours are different, (laughs) but there's no difference in the policies. They are all working to Agenda 2030. This is very clear now. And uh, I think, in a way... It's, it's enabled people to see through what they're doing because they all use the same language, they've got the same policies, they've got the same objectives. And if you challenge them, you get the same response, which is that you're treated like a piece of dirt. And I, I, I wanted to say to you that the Oxford Mail article that I, I just put up the picture of you and the headline, former MP wannabe, is a victim of Oxford Council's IT mix-up. So they could have just written pleb, couldn't they, to express their feelings? <laughs> yes, but, well, they could, Alex. But Artwell stood as a parliamentary candidate, and that requires respect. I've I've done it myself. It was a huge amount of work to go out and leaflet. Uh, to speak to people, to take the abuse from some individuals, but a huge amount of work in order to try and participate in the democratic system. And when Artwell does it in Oxford, his local paper, um, let's talk about the journalist, Albert Tate. I'm not sure what Albert has ever done in his life, but he calls Artwell a wannabe. He's a journalism wannabe. Absolutely. <laughs> But what an, what an insult that is. Uh, oh, well, just to explain what, why that article was written, what you had been trying to do and what you discovered was happening to your communications with the local council. Okay. As part of the UK's column's influence on me, I've been speaking at full council meetings, which I hope everybody knows happens four times a year. It's our only opportunity to hold our elected councillors and executive officers to account, and I always try to make use of it. Anyway, they see me as a little bit of a, as a nuisance, shall I say, and I discovered that I would put my address in, turn up to speak, and they would say, oh, Mr. Artwell, we didn't receive your address, you can't speak. Now, this happened at three occasions, and I, on the third occasion, I really got rather angry, demanded an, an investigation, and it turned out that Oxford City Council, when I sent my address in, they were sending it to an unmanned bop somewhere in cyberspace so that they could then claim with plausible deniability not to have received my address and therefore disenfranchising me with credibility, which they'd done for nine months. As a result of my complaints, they (laughs) apologised and so forth. And then I took it to the paper and asked the paper to publish. After a lot of persuasion, they finally persuaded um, to, to publish the piece which, which uh, Mr. Garish has quite kindly put up there in which the reporter described me as a wannabe. But that is the background to the story, the report on the fact that um, they disenfranchised me for nine months. I couldn't speak. And it's only because and and only because of my persistence that I've managed to get it overthrown and, and, and highlight the awful practices that are going on within the local council. 
Oh, well, would it be fair to say that because you've been challenging the council over quite a few years that that they decided to put you in the naughty box and simply try and ignore I, your communications because you you've been a you've been a big letter writer haven't you for the for the local press i gentlemen i have six ring, ring binders full of my published letters in the local paper some of them are really attacking labor and what they have done in oxford and let's just say that they don't like it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they don't so, like it one little bit. But I, Mark, I have really you, have you come to, up with the. Sorry, go ahead and finish your thought, Art. Will I really want to encourage listeners? I because I'm, I'm really passionate about this. I want to encourage people to really think about standing in local elections because I only think now that that's our only redemption. It's our only remedy to the tyranny. And I, and I don't use that word lightly. I really believe we are descending into a political tyranny mm-hmm. when our constitutional monarchy is being subverted as the Telegraph wrote last week by green billionaires who have their own agendas beyond what even Parliament is pushing through. And that, that message really needs to resonate and get out there. Just wondering if Mark has come across cases like this in the US. Uh, yes, maybe not quite as egregious. Uh, maybe the naughty boxes are not as frequent, but uh, absolutely. Um, there is this autopilot mentality among uh, local councilmen, even here in little old Donna, Texas, where the potholes keep getting bigger. Uh, you can't get a return email from the mayor. Uh, the most basic fundamental things are not taken care of. Meanwhile, the city bought this expensive fleet of police cars, code enforcement vehicles, um, uh, animal control vehicles, even though there's no animal control. And uh, just a massive amount of spending on vehicles, police cars, fire fire department, and all these other vehicles, huge utility vehicles. Meanwhile, the roads underneath them, the local streets are crumbling. And you can't get a word in edgewise. And when the city council meets, it's on Tuesdays at 5.30 when everyone's still working. Now, this is just one example of, of thousands. But then we found out a few years ago that even small towns were working with the Wilson Institute the Woodrow Wilson Institute, a globalist institution, which has been working to kind of globalize the small towns in Texas and, and around the country. And the Wilson uh, Institute, uh, which used to have a, a um, chairman, Jane Harmon, a former congresswoman from California, who was instrumental in creating the post-9-11 Patriot Act, uh, she, she led that uh, Wilson Institute for a long time. And then that organization has brought speakers to South Texas, including a big city, McAllen, and all the local mayors would show up for their, for their little dose of globalism. Yeah, uh, This was just a few years back, maybe 2019. Yeah. Sure. yeah. Thanks for that, Mark. Yeah, and- uh, sorry, just yeah. to come back to Artwell, um, several people are reacting to you already in the chat box and saying we need more people like this because mm-hmm. you are active, you are... Uh, you've got a good sense of humour. You're smiling as you tell the story of getting out there and and challenging the council. But I understand that there are other people now standing up in in the Oxford area. Can you tell us a bit about what what they're doing? Yes, I am delighted to say that we have something called Oxford Organisations of of Ox, uh, Oxford 
Organizations of Independence, run by a lady called Dr. Gwinnett. And she, what she is doing is that she's asking people to stand in all the wards in Oxford, and she's asking them to, to stand on on their own principles so that they can make their own decisions, but it will be an alternative place for the local people to vote, especially people who are opposed to the Oxford's roadblock policies and anti-car policies and so forth. So, I mean, I'm really pleased. I've gone along, I've joined, I've I've let them know that I want to join it and so forth, um, because I think it's a good thing. We need to be able to unite our our powers together so we act as a bit more of a as a group because it's really lonely being on your own sometimes Uh, so this has come forward at a wonderful time and it's very much needed and I'm hoping that the people of Oxford will really take this to heart and vote for their independence especially people who are looking to oppose what I see is our loss of our traditional freedoms and we are losing them in Oxford. I could go into detail. They want to bring in 15 minute cities. I mean, these things are really getting on advanced. They want to stop you from going from one part of Oxford to another in a private car. Honestly, it feels as if UK column listeners, we're going back to feudalism where I'm going to need a a little bit of paper from the local manor, the local to go from one part of Oxford to the other. That is where they mm. want us to go. And on top of that, they want you to travel by horse and cart. I'm not joking when I say that. They literally want you back in a horse and cart. Because although they like electric at the moment, I just think it's only a matter of time before they turn their backs, even on their so-called electric vehicles. You know, we're, we're, I think you're right it's, there. It's are. perilous times now. Yeah. yeah. Shall I throw in some historical memory? People might be surprised at the angle this comes from. But before I emigrated, I was a member of the Orange Lodge, which covers Oxford. And I came to know there. And this the point I'm making here is that if you don't defend those who uh, most people look down on, you won't get uh, freedom of speech and and, uh, assembly for anyone else. I was told by the older gentleman there that the last time that lodge, which had Oxford in its name, had marched through Oxford, because, of course, they wanted to pay their respects at the Martyrs Memorial in Oxford City, was 40 years ago this year, 1984. There was a bit of a kerfuffle that year, a bit like the German Antifa stuff going on now. And somebody high up in Oxford police then told the lodge, that's the last time you ever march in this city. We will see to it. Don't ask who we was. It was the gentlemen who make up their minds on these things. And after that, anything that was, it was the same year, Public Order Act, what nearly the same year, the Public Order Act was brought in 18, 1986, but uh, it was the mid-80s when this legislation started uh, wafting through. So the, the decision was already being made in these cities that regard themselves as a cut above the rest and more progressive 40 years ago, uh, and under the brand of Thatcherism and liberal Toryism, that uh, if you are undesirable in your expressions, in your opinions, in your associations, we don't want the likes of you. And you know, where this ends up is people losing their, in the Soviet Union, their propiska, as they were called, their, their residence permit to live in Leningrad or Moscow. A lot of people who were Christians, dissidents of some kind, were told at the city council office when they went to renew their pass uh, to live in their street. No, no, no. You, you have, uh, in the last five years or whatever the period was, you have expressed yourselves or associated with people in ways that this Soviet city finds uh, undesirable. So off you go back to the boondocks. 
Yeah. And and if I can add into that one, uh, Alex, this is a little story. I'm sure the audience, it's true. But back in the days of Tony Blair as prime minister, he came down to Plymouth to to meet up with uh, the great and the good, mainly centred around Plymouth City Council. And um, one of in the afternoon, there was a meeting and an individual that I had pretty good relationships with was in that meeting. And I think it was about quarter to Hello? five, I got a call from this individual uh, to say, Brian, I just got to tell you what I've heard is incredible. And what this person said to me is that Tony Blair had been in this meeting where the then chief executive of Plymouth City Council, was talking about how the city would be divided up into areas. But the person said to me, the thing was the language they were using in talking about zones and sectors, it sounded almost military. And then they said, to my astonishment, they were talking about which class of people would be allowed to live in which area of the city. And there was a bit of discussion. And then the chief executive said to Tony Blair, well, the only thing is we're getting quite a lot of um, uh, pushback from people. They they are challenging us. And Tony Blair looked at the then chief executive and said, you have been given special powers and you should use them. And what Tony Blair was referring to was to the, the uh, I think they'd come in a little while before, but these were, this was the act to do with powers to local authorities. I can't think of the exact name of it. I think it was but, called the Localism Act, wasn't it? Which, in a yeah. nutshell, told it reversed English law and US law on this point that it was although although a council's a public body and hence can do nothing except what it's given specific entitlement to do by the law, that was reversed to to put into law the sentence that a local council can do anything that a natural person can do, which makes a a mockery of the idea of public law. Yeah. So so the person who was um, relaying this to me was, was actually disturbed by what they had heard in the meeting. They found it very spooky and very frightening that the Tony Blair and others were talking about this draconian control within a city. Mark, you, you've got something here, I think. Well, thinking about the mentality of Oxford and Tony Blair and all the powers that be with regards to the primer on AI that the World Economic Forum discussed at, an annual, at its annual Davos Confab, January 17th, that I mentioned in the regular news. So this is the mentality um, basically making cities into these uh, military garrisons, at least in the ter- in terms of their structure, with sectors and all that, and having free speech be non-existent. And so this is where AI would come in with surveillance, to, surveiller, to surveil whom on behalf of whom becomes the question. And you're talking about a class system, a rigid class system. Some might even call it a caste system. And you're talking about... Um, uh, getting permission to go from one place to another and uh, possibly going back to horse and buggy in some instances and things like that. Um, this is the milieu or this is the context in which they're talking about, well, we need AI to be inclusive. This was another comment at the World Economic Forum Primer and AI. Inclusive. Uh, everything we're hearing is the exact opposite. This is all about exclusion except all for the cream of the crop of the elite. 
that's that's the that's the sum and substance of what we're hearing from our guest and from other UK column investigations. Yeah, um, I, I'm fascinated that several people in the chat well chat box. Well, I'm not surprised they're being very complimentary about what you've already said to us, Artwell. And then some somebody's just posted, this should have been on the main UK column news. And somebody else said, yes, this man should be talking to UK column news. Well, we'll let the audience into a little secret that we are indeed planning to do this. Um, but to enable Artwell to sort of come in gently in a relaxed environment with the UK column team, we suggested that he joined extra time today. So, oh, well, I'll just... Um, give you that little bit of feedback that I can see on screen here that a lot of people paying attention to you. It's, thank you. You can't tell you how marvellous it is to have such wonderful people saying great things about one. I want to say something, though, because something happened over the weekend that I'm rather disturbed about. I am disturbed that a jury of nine men and three women found the young man guilty of downloading templates which essentially were about patriotic stickers up in in um, Leeds Crown Court. That's and that worse Melia. than that, yes, worse than that, they said that telling, even though what he said was accurate and truthful, I can't believe, men and women, that truth is no longer a defence in the English judicial system. Have I, I'm scarred by it. We, we've seen it coming for a while. It started in Scotland and the pressure started coming through the Carnegie Foundation and others. And the idea there was that uh, the court had a very important duty here in the interests of global citizenship to make the findings of fact on what was in the alleged offender's mind. So mens rea would no longer have to be proved on an evidentiary and oppositional adversarial basis, which is the cornerstone of English law in the US, wherever you look, no, from now on, the court, in no uncertain terms, starting in Scots law, but spreading, would say, you are clearly uh, guilty because, and here's, uh, as you say, Art, here's the, 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 um, uh, the should we say, the, the litmus test of it. The only question here is, was he a naughty boy in his mind? Because the jury found, as you said, that the stuff was lawful. Oswald Mosley's books are not unlawful. The stickers do not express unlawful or inciting sentiments. And yet the judge said, you're going to have to find him guilty because he's a bad boy. And like a bunch of English sheep, they rolled over and did so. Mm. Mark. I, sorry, well, it's Mark. It's, yeah. A brief footnote, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace was investigated by the Reese Committee of the U.S. Congress in the 1950s, 1953, I believe, as the Korean War was ending. And the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace was accused with plenty of evidence of exacerbating and setting the stage for war. And that became very clear in the public record. So, you know, the whole Carnegie thing and Andrew Carnegie, the steel magnate, would then donate these libraries all over the United States to soften the blow. See, we're not really so bad. Just like John D. Rockefeller handing, uh, Sr., the oil magnate, handing out dimes to children, uh, who was yeah. a super billionaire even then in 1913 dollars. So these charitable um, uh Robber barons are always trying to polish their image after all their perfidy. Yeah, and I can't, I can't help promise it, but I understand that <laughs> Charles Mallet may on Wednesday be able to feature the Sam Melia case. He said he's looking into it for me. I can't, of course, promise on his behalf what will fit into the news because we research things well uh, if we do them. But I think it certainly merits a lot of discussion. 
Yeah, brilliant. Oh, well. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, I use old-fashioned terminology like constitutional monarchy. We live under a constitutional monarchy. I consider myself His Majesty's African heritage subject. Um, I, I, I want to say to people that we've got to remember these old, wonderful terms because the youngsters don't know them. And I think that the authorities are using... Th- th- are driving people away from the terms. And that is why we got Mr. Hall facing terrible time in a court case. We've got the, what happened up in Leeds to these young people here now, which just goes against the grain. I like what I like to call Anglo-Saxons people's long struggle to give us accountable local governance, a judicial system that has that gloss that you see say when I used to do law, the gloss of fairness, of equity about it. All those have been washed away and they've been washed away because in my view, we, we've gone away from the old terms. We need to go yeah. back to them because we're losing Absolutely. our... Because, okay, you agree. That, that, Thank that you. Drive, yeah, that, that drive by the Carnegie Foundation was actually called global citizenship, deliberately supplanting the idea of being a subject or a U.S. citizen in the case of the U.S. Okay. Uh, and replacing it with something of, you know, allegiance to, as we saw with the EU Parliament uh, resolution, the idea that uh, there's no truth, there's no history, and it's all supranational. And one group is at each other's throats. You know, they, yeah. they would be quite surprised to, to see in this news extra a black man standing up for Sam Melia. But it doesn't surprise us, of course, because we know our audience. Yeah. Well, so and, and- I want to... <laughs> so I just just as we have always said, you know, um, in the camps, it isn't going to matter what color somebody is or what their religion is. If you're in the camps, you're going to be looking for somebody who's capable of being your friend and looking after you. So I, I am actually encouraged by the way that we're actually seeing divisions fall away because people are now starting to sense that something very nasty is installing itself in the country. So I, I think we've really got an opportunity to bring people together. The other thing I just want to say and I am clock-watching now, is that um, um, in local politics, the thing which people forget is that the local councillors and even the local authority officers invariably live locally. And therefore, when you start to put them under pressure, they feel uncomfortable pretty quickly because, of course, if you accuse them of, of things which are correct, what you're saying are true, um, that starts to spread amongst their local friends and contacts in their local community. And boy, they get nervous pretty quickly. So um, if you change local authority figures, they, of course, then are capable of changing the power base in the, lo- in the, in the political parties, national, uh, sorry, in the national political parties, local power base. You deal with the councillors, you're already starting to deal with the national political parties. That's how I see it. May we close with a very brief clip from an American town hall meeting up in Burlington, Vermont. It gives away rather more than the young lady intended. Uh, I I think we we got that ready to roll, I hope, Stephanie, if you can manage that. How appalled I am that people are bringing up the Holocaust. Do not use other genocides to describe this one. I have been... Oh. 
Oops. Yeah. Interesting. Do you need to explain it in case people haven't got it? But it's uh... it's to do with a resolution being taken at local level on the disproportionate, uh, as many people find it, use of violence against the people of Gaza, whether or not Israel has a right of self-defense, which is now something the ICJ didn't want to rule on expressly. Uh, but she said by her incautious word wording that she was accepting that this was a genocide going on in the Gaza Strip. And then she covered her mouth as she realized what she'd done. Yeah. <laughs> okay. If I may. Go on quickly. Yeah. The foreign affairs article that I referenced early in the main show about a next global war uh, that just came out in that CFR journal, uh, it used that same language that this is a war in the Middle East. Uh, again, uh, trying to say that there may be an, a next global war. Of course, there'll be rumors of wars to propagandize us. That's the ongoing war. Our own nations are working against us. So that's far worse than wars between nations, because that's theoretical. Our own nations oppressing us is, is real and every day, as we've described in so many ways. But that article uh, completely misrepresented in foreign affairs, this whole thing, calling it a war in the Middle East. It is not. It is a completely disproportionate and genocidal uh, pr uh, procedure and operation by the Israeli army. Meanwhile, we're going after the Houthis for interfering with um, uh, shipping, international maritime shipping, um, and not uh, getting Israel to stop its genocidal behavior. Um, the, the contradiction there and the, the hypocrisy is just too thick to navigate. Okay, Mark, thank you for that. Oh, well, have you got any closing thoughts on any of those subjects? <clears throat> um, I just want to say that we live in a constitutional monarchy, not a, de not a democracy, and I think people keep getting those things mixed up all the time. I totally agree with the last sentiment about... England, I'm very ashamed, viewers, that we are bombing one of the poorest countries in the world for interfering with shipping whilst ignoring, and I'm concentrating on the 7,000 young children that I see being pulled out of buildings and so forth. And I, it, it's so horrible, I can barely watch it sometimes. The, dis, the disparity in what we're doing now with our foreign policy with Lord Cameron needs to be really looked at closely. I'm sure UK Colin will do that anyway, but I agree with the sentiment that's been expressed. Okay, right. Thank, thank you very much for that. Well, I'm going to say to you all, we're out of time, um, but I, I would just like to say to the audience that, that many of you are asking us to do more. There's been some comments today where people are talking about UK Colin putting on things in evenings. Um, my response to that is we are very, very keen to expand the UK column, but we need your help to do that because um, to expand our capacity invariably means that we need more people. And that means that we have to have more finance coming in. So if you really value us and you want to see us expand, then we have to say to you, please help us to gain new members because this is the most important uh, uh, source of income for us. And uh, we know that you've been good to us over a great many years, but I will also say to you, we sense that we are at the moment under great pressure. There is a backlash against media such as the UK column 
Uh, there are many people who are po uh, poking very sharp sticks at us. They don't like what we're doing. They don't like the effect we're having. Um, so we'll say if we want to push all that to one side and expand the UK column, then we need help from our viewers and listeners to bring in those additional members. And I'm not shy of saying this because um, it's only by getting stronger that we'll be able to do more and also help people who are embroiled in battles with the establishment themselves, such as Richard D. Hall, for example, but there are many other people. Okay, we've got to end it there. So I'm going to say, oh, well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been really great to have you on. And we will look forward to getting you uh, onto the UK Column News for some comment. I'll be talking to you about that. Mark, thanks for um, coming in from the States and enjoy your coffee and bagel, which I'm sure is coming up. And uh, Alex, not sure what you're up to now, but thanks for your time. We'll end there. Thanks. Herring, soused, soused, her <laughs> sorry, soused herrings and Yeneva was the killer dish I remember from the, my time in Holland. We'll end there. Thanks for joining me. Bye bye.